Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Trip. Rob, you are a SoCal guy, right? I am indeed. So if Southern California is SoCal, what do they call Northern California? NorCal. In NorCal. NorCal, right? NorCal? Yeah. It's, it's not it NoCal, though. It's, it's NorCal. not NoCal. It's NorCal, which okay. I have to give mad props to NorCal. They have some of the most beautiful terrain in the world. So we have, NorCal. yeah. So our guest today is a NorCal guy. Benning Lipscher is the founder of Jesus Culture. Um, their vision is encounter God, be empowered in community engaged in the city for revival and transformation. Uh, him and his wife, CJ, have three kids, and he's the new author of a book called The Three Mile Walk. Welcome to the show, Banning. Great, uh, great to be here. Let me just right off the bat say this. First of all, you just said no, Cal, and that's that's just, I don't even like- I've just, never been on, to Cal. Man. He like, said no, Cal. man, no, Cal. It is NorCal. And although, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for the kind words from Rob about Northern California. Northern Californians are a little bit irritated by Southern Californians. That so is NorCal, true. and we're a little bit kind of, you know, uh, you know, we're kind of the younger child syndrome, but we're irritated with Southern California because they took our, our water rights. We don't like their sports teams for sure. Uh, you travel around the world, and if you're from Northern California, you go around the world and everybody wants to know what, you know, it's just Southern, all they know is Southern California. It's Southern like, there is a, LA. There's another, there, you don't know the grapevine, but there is something north of the grapevine in California, you know? So it's all right though. It's all right. It's I, let's, if I could just finish. Let's not start a fight let, before we no, get started. No fight. Let's I have, just I have, this out. I have mad love for all of California. I, I got friends up at Ray Johnson so up there and, yes, yes, so and you guys up I, in Red. I guess uh, in NoCal, I've never been. So yes, you've, you've never yes. been. Never been. I and go. I have taken that grapevine passageway many, many times. <laughs> many times, yes. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, really, honestly, uh, love what you guys are doing. And, and every time I come to the university, it's just stunning and the students are incredible so it's great to be on the podcast awesome. awesome we're great to have you now uh banning you founded jesus culture and most of our audience may recognize jesus culture from the music you guys have done yeah. um you guys really exploded on the scene musically um break every chain was sung i think in every church for about six straight years um <laughs> i still sing it i still sing it in the shower that's not, not, not here. um yes. i'll probably hum a couple bars later uh, <laughs> um but it's more than music, Jesus Culture is. What, what sort of give us a little bit of the history of Jesus Culture and sure. where you guys are now? Sure. Well, this is our quick story is, is that I was on staff up in, uh, I was actually grew up in Redding, California. And then I started full-time staff uh, when I was 19 years old at Bethel Church. So when I did youth ministry there for 12 years. And when I was youth pastoring, um, we decided to kind of put on a conference in 1999 and we named it Jesus Culture. The conference was named Jesus Culture. And um, a lot of people would know our world, which is Kim Walker-Smith and then Chris Kilala. Uh, you mentioned Christine DeMarco and the Torwaltz and different ones, but kind of the two original was Kim and Chris. Kim and Chris were just part of my youth group. So Chris is 36 now, and he was 12. He was a middle school kid when I started youth pastoring. And he was in my wedding when he was 14 years old, practically lived in my house in high school type deal. A lot of video games played with Chris in high school. And then, and then uh, on the N64. 
And then Kim um, had just turned 18, moved to Reading, got involved in our youth group. So we had this worship kind of, you know, Kim and Chris were there, another girl named Melissa. And so we started holding these conferences and we were doing worship. And, um, but we just had a heart to mobilize young people for revival, to equip youth groups, to go after campuses, to like, like our heart was just to see our city impacted and then just run with other youth groups to see their cities impacted. But we started finding in these conferences that something was happening during worship. Like it was just kids were getting changed and lives were being transformed and they were encountering God. And so in 2005, we said, hey, we should record an album. This was really before. I mean, there's a whole worship scene now. Yeah. This is honestly, I, there was a worship scene, but it was like Integrity and Ron Cannoli and Kent Henry and Vineyard had definitely been around for yeah. sure as well. But um. Anyway, so we just said, hey, let's record something, and we did, and then, you know, it's a longer story, but then the next year we record another one, and a kid put a song up on YouTube, and things just took off, so, but but we just continued to go after that. We kept holding conferences, and just, you know, started something called Campus Awakening, and and we're just really trying to go after revival in a generation, and then the worship was just really kind of but but we actually only recorded for years i um for the first uh 10 years from we only recorded the conferences so yeah. we were just our heart was we're encountering god in worship if we if we record this i wonder if people would have the same encounter hmm. and that's why we were doing so many covers in the in the early days that's why everybody is like you know we were doing so many covers because we were just taking the songs that people were encountering God in, in the conference and putting them on a CD. Like we, it wasn't for us about writing songs or some worship, anything. It was just like, let's capture that moment and then put it out on CD for people. Yeah. So that's kind of our story. Very cool. I'm going to, I'm going to shout out my favorite uh, Jesus culture collab album is with Martin Smith from delirious. Like oh, I yeah, cut my teeth yeah. like in college, like that delirious cutting edge album. Oh, I yeah. wore it yes. out and you guys oh, partnered yeah. up with Martin Smith. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. Listen, we, we literally, you should have seen our team. They were giddy. They were like, like, and those musicians don't get starstruck too often, yeah. but we're at the conference in 2012 was Martin Smith doing that album and they're like up on stage living their dream playing with martin smith recording the album like it, and, and they were just unashamed about it so we actually had a thought for a while we've never done it but we wanted to get our team together and just cover the entire cutting edge album oh just just so start to finish purchase bot. just cover the entire cutting edge album like um who's that guy ryan adams did yeah for taylor, did for taylor swift, for taylor swift. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, although, although Delirious would have probably done it, but anyways, yeah, uh, anyways, so there we go. I'm kind of straight. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go talk to our team now. Let's go cover. Yeah, it. no, that's, that. that's yeah. cool, man. That's really cool. So, off the wall question: uh, Jesus culture known for the music. Are you a musical person yourself? You know, I'm not. I um, here's the funny story about me. I mean, I've got a guitar sitting here, and I can play G, D, E minor, C in the own private time of my time with Jesus. But, um, but. Uh, no, you know what? Um, here, here's what I here's what was for for me. I'm I'm not musical, but there did seem to be something where I recognized when there was an anointing on somebody, or I helped push to make sure we were capturing moments. So that's that's kind of been my contribution. Gotcha. <laughs> Even break every change, Christine DeMarco. Interesting story with her. She was at this little house of prayer in San Francisco, and um, she was early twenties. 
and I was in San Francisco. She had been connected to another guy named Lou Engel that I knew. And she, mm -hmm. I'm in San Francisco and I'm, I'm preaching at a prayer conference, but like 30 people show up for my morning session. Like it was like in San Francisco, but she was leading worship. And, um, and it was this little ragtag team and she's, you know, she, she, but there was just this purity coming off of her and yeah. in worship. And I was in worship and I could just feel this purity on her, but I had a picture in worship of this underground stream flowing and it was getting purified from the rocks and the roots. And then it popped up above ground. And the Lord told me she won't be underground much longer. Oh. And so I, I, I didn't even know her. I just approached her and said, Hey, listen, uh, we kind of have a little, kind of a little music label we've started and would you be interested and we'll help pay for an album. And anyways, my point is that that's my contribution, which is that's yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Hey, one of the hardest transitions in every, in any capacity is when you take a young adult or a youth movement and you try to translate it into broader or bigger or quote unquote adult church culture, right? Big church. We call it big church, big church, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Big church culture. Right. So how have you been able to transition this Jesus culture idea, values, ministry from a youth engaged youth movement into a larger, bigger, broader, big church context? Yeah. It's a great question. They, I think for us early on, our message involved generations early on, even though we weren't necessarily gathering generations I was speaking to young people for years. I was going after one of our main messages was the generations needed to be aligned and you need to be submitted. And uh, it was out of the story of Moses and um, John, uh, jo Joshua. When Joshua goes and fights the Amalekites, he's got the sword in his hand. And then Moses goes to the top of the hill with the rod in his hand. Yeah. And when Moses got tired and was out of position, Joshua lost. And, and then when, when Moses' hands were up, Joshua was victorious. And so when we said we want to mobilize a generation for revival, we knew that I've got to get them properly aligned with the older generation because although the younger generation may have a sword in their hand, they don't have the rod. They don't have authority. And they may, and I can, and I realized early on, I can teach, I can equip you and train you and give you a sword, but if you're not properly aligned to the rod that's in the hand of the older generation, your sword doesn't matter. And, and Wesley in his commentary actually says that, you know, victory for the Israelites was more dependent on Moses' hands than it was on Joshua's hands. Mm -hmm. so, so we were constantly preaching this type of message that revival is not just a young person thing. We're not just looking for a move of God amongst young people. We've got to be properly aligned. It's Mordecai's fathering Esther's that saved nations. Like this was our language. So when we trans. And we have a deep value for it. Like it wasn't like I have a deep value for it. So when we transition to a church, we, we just, we immediately have a deep, deep passion for church as a family, which means all generations and those generations need to be connected and properly aligned. And so we, we were a youth movement. There's a lot of youth movements. Oh, this is such a broad statement that I hate, but I don't like broad statements, but a lot of youth movements, don't kind of value the older generation. They kind of want them to get out of the way so they can do their thing. We were always a youth movement who had a massive, massive value for the older generation to be connected. If we were going to do what we were called to do. So when we stepped into a church, I think it kind of naturally lended itself to mm -hmm. value. And all even, even right now, we still have a younger look and feel, but I just communicate to the older generation. Listen, we have a huge value for you. In fact, I'll tell them, 
that when the Israelites were losing, God didn't send reinforcements to Joshua. He sent reinforcements to Moses because right. Moses was the key. So I'm, I'm telling them like, listen, guys, you guys are the key. Like, right. you guys are the, like we, God's sending reinforcements to you, but we've got to have a look and feel that can target the 25 year old, the 22 year old. At yeah. the end of the day, if a 22 year old doesn't walk in our environment and feel like this is a place they can belong, then, then we're not dead right now, but we're quickly dead. Right. In just in just a few short years. So I've just told all of our people, you, you know, if you got to wear earplugs, wear earplugs. If you got to, if you got to sit a little bit farther back so the haze doesn't choke you out in the middle of worship, sit farther back. If, you know, but just understand that we have to, we want to reach everybody, but we've got to point our look and feel at that young adult age unless we become, unless we can't accomplish what we're called to do. So, yeah. and they've all bought into it. Yeah. We've got so many older people in our church and they just, they just said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going yeah. to, we're, we're going to adapt. And I've always said this, this is a really long answer for you guys. I've always said this. It's a lot easier, in my opinion, it's a lot easier for a 60 year old to understand what we're doing with the look and feel. And then the content is meaty, right? The content's thick. We're not hitting beach balls around or having watered down content. But but a 60-year-old with good content preaching can still adapt to that 25-year-old look and feel, where a 25-year-old, though, is not going to adapt to a 60-year-old mm -hmm. look and feel. It's not going to happen. So yeah. I do ask, and I think it's biblical. I think in Malachi, it's the hearts of the fathers that turn first. Yeah. So I am asking the fathers and mothers to turn their hearts to not to it's not the it's not the you know the children that turn their hearts first it's the fathers and mothers and that looks like we create environments where we're the ones that will bend as the older generation to make sure the younger walk in this room and don't and feel like this is a place for me not just my parents yeah that's my really long answer guys no i think it's a... i'm in quarantine right now so <laughs> hey just, we, we, are well. we we want all the words okay we so, want all the words <laughs> i want to ask this because it's a tension i think a lot of leaders face and and you you grew up in bethel and and that's yeah. a house that really for a lot of you know bill johnson's done a good job of making space for young leaders throughout the whole yes. time he's been there you said at 19 you were involved in the youth ministry how does a leader hold intention, this ability to use wisdom and lead, but give space to young leaders to kind of come up and, and try and fail even at times? Yeah, well, I think we just have to figure out what our goal is and what success looks like. And if success is just simply maintaining what we have or making sure that we, you know, don't ever lose any, like we said, figure out what success is. So part of success has to be, we raise up the next generation. It just has to be at the end of my life. If I'm at the end of my life and I look around and thought I haven't raised anybody up uh, because I was too worried about protecting what I had or growing what I had, then I, it's just not success. So I, I think we just have to realize that success is, is tied to raising up the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and you can't raise people up without letting them fail and without letting them make mistakes. And, and, and then I actually think that there's also this, there's a great, biblically, there's this concept. Elisha needed Elijah. Elisha needed the double portion, yeah. needed the wisdom, needed the guidance. And Elisha served Elijah and stuck with e e Elijah. But simultaneously, Elijah needed Elisha. Mm. This was not just a one-way street. 
Yeah. Elijah needed Elisha. And if, and if Elijah's, man, Elijah's mandate, which was to dethrone Jezebel and her stranglehold and influence in the land, it didn't happen when Elijah was alive. It happened when Elisha was alive and Jehu. So Elijah's long-term success was connected to Elisha and Jehu. My point of that is this, if Elijah, I understand this, my success is going to be connected to the people I'm raising up because I have a mandate from the Lord that quite, that, that maybe it's not fully fulfilled in my lifetime. Maybe it's going to be fulfilled in the next generation's lifetime of people that I, that I raised up. My point is this, we need each other. Mordecai needed Esther, but Esther needed Mordecai. Uh, like, like there was this mutual need. So I think if there's this understanding as the older generation that one success looks like I got to raise up the next generation, it's not success. Yeah. If, if mm -hmm. there's not succession, I mean, that's just, it's that's not good. success. That's if there's good. not succession. And then also I need the younger generation. This isn't like, like I just need them. Even right now as a 44 year old, I, you know, sometimes they're like, Hey, what do you think about this graphic? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm not the target audience. <laughs> like I, I, you know, uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Is that you, you don't even know MXPX, but you know, MXPX. Yeah. Yeah. I know MXPX. <laughs> Super tones. Or, but I'm just yeah. saying, like, I don't, I don't like, I don't know. I'm 44 unless it's boys <laughs> to men and vanilla ice and color me bad. I, so, I think it's lame. So we, but good. We said Alexis, it's our producer. I, I use a, I was using a program called Canva, which is like scripted, make easy Photoshop. And she sent me this like frowny face emoji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So listen, we, we like, and, and we understand that because what I make, it looks like a 44 year old made it and what right. she makes it hits the target audience. And so our, our yes. vision is different. And I think I love what you're saying in, in it's probably your new book title or your new book is that, Success equals succession. So yes. get Zonervan on the phone and let's write that. So yeah. <laughs> boom. Um, but it's true. Like, like, and if we're going to release them, we got to reach them. Yeah. Yes. I think, and I think here's the reason why these conversations are important. It's because right now, especially in the midst of all of this craziness that's happening, we're literally, as we speak, reinventing what quote big church looks like. We talked about yes. big church, yes. right? Yeah. So, so, now more than ever, and we've said this a couple of times on the show, but now more than ever, this is the time to reverse mentor in leadership, yes. to let the younger generation tell us how to do this effectively, to tell yes. us how to do this with, with some intelligence and some wisdom and some creativity, right? So, yeah. so people are looking for models on how to do what Jesus culture has done. And I think yeah. that's why this, this part of the reason why this conversation is so important is because the youth, the intergenerational sort of revival um, I think is the only true revival that can really happen. Barna talks about this research indicates this yes. Gen Z statistics prove this. We have to do an intergenerational revival and yes. if we're truly on the cusp of what some people say is the third great awakening. Yes. And I pray it be so it's yeah. not going to come out of a singular movement. It's going to yes, come out of a unified force of intergenerational believers gathering together to do one thing to serve and to love and to honor Jesus. Right. So that's, yeah. that's where, where it comes from. So these conversations are critically important because I think people right now are looking for models on how to do what you guys have done and are continuing to do. And that's, yeah. that's, that's not easy. So um, third grade awakening. I mean, 
from what you're seeing, from what you're sensing, from your side of the world and your side of the country? I mean, are we there? What, what, need, what do we need to do in order to sort of pave the way? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think everybody was sensing prophetically and just in prayer and everything else that 2020 was going to be a significant year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's turning out to be a significant year, not necessarily what we thought. But I think that, um, listen, I don't think the Lord sent, sent COVID. I'm praying against it and the destruction it's causing, the loss of life and the sickness. Um, I do think, though, that in the midst of crisis, there are real opportunities and can be a real gift, both for the body of Christ and for those that don't know Jesus. And I, I will say this, one of my big prayers right now for the third great awakening is, is prodigals. Yeah. Um, I, my, I, my prayer right now is that this moment, and we have been praying since the beginning of the year, we felt so strongly that we were to pray for and position ourselves and get ready for, for the prodigals to flood back home. And I think there's something in the midst of crisis that I think awakening, when it comes to the church, if we could just... When the Lord begins to awaken believers, um, it's, it's, it's when things have been stripped. It's when all of a sudden the things that I relied on, the things that I leaned on, the things that I trusted, my own effort, my own strength. Well, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I think we're going to come out of this and I'll talk to pastors. I, I'm saying right now, if I just talk to church leaders, it's this. I think we're going to very quickly find this out, that Jesus is the one that builds his church and he's really good at it. It's not your effort that was building the church. Right. It's not your game plan that was building the church. It's not your strategy and ideas that were building the church. It's not your hard work that was building the church. It was Jesus who was building the church, and he's really good at it. And if we would let him build it, he's going to build his church. And I think that sometimes when we get stripped of things, our own effort, you know, we're kind of settling in now this far into this shelter in place kind of deal. But at the beginning, I mean, you're just scrambling, trying to figure out, like, am I just on Instagram Live? And is it a guy, like, all the stuff that we relied on to build the church, all the stuff, and the lights, and the stage, and, the, and, and, and you know, the, being able to capture the crowd, and, and, and the great, the signs as we enter, as we enter, and kids, all that's gone. It's gone. But guess what's happening? God is continuing to build his church yeah. and he's going to keep building his church and he's going to keep, and it's one of those things where you're like, uh, I had a moment. This is one of the things, uh, my, my point of all this is, this is why I think the Lord is revealing something that's going to start, that's going to cause that moment where say, God, just come. You're the one that builds the church. My effort doesn't build the church. And I think that that awakening and that revival and that move of God comes when the church realizes this and just says, God, like, come do what you do. I had a moment years ago with Jesus Culture. We started our conferences in 1999, like we mentioned. But for, for we had no money. Bethel wasn't Bethel. It wasn't what it is today. We had no money at all. We're like making our own lights, staying up till three at night, trying to like go into Home Depot and buying outside colored lights, putting them on these four by sixes, daisy chaining, you know, extension cords together to kind of try to make some form of lights for our stage. But, it, but slowly the conferences were getting a little bit bigger. And so there was some money that we had to spend on stage. So we were starting, and this is great. As the builder, we're in a, you know, it was, this is fun. We're like putting money into the stage and designing it and it's lights and it's all this type of stuff. And then in 2004, the guy who was in our youth group, who was kind of the creative guy behind what we were doing, his, his, uh, grand, his grandfather died right before the conference. And so we had no stage at all. It was literally a couple park hands and just the church blank stage. And um, 
and we uh, we went into the conference and it was powerful i mean it was like uh, i mean god was there and kids were encountering god and 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 i remember thinking wow lights don't matter at all <laughs> and yeah. I, it was one of those i was like wow we spend a lot of, and and we have lights at our church we have great sound system at our church but it was this realization of wow the effort i have put into making sure the stage is amazing isn't actually what has an impact at all and my point of this is i think that great awakening you're talking about god's beginning to deal with us as leaders trying to clarify and reveal to us what really matters and what really makes an impact it's his presence it's the anointing it's yeah. it's basics it's basics as it's just calling people this is the crazy thing so churches are now calling people i'm talking to pastors that are like you know some of the most impactful stuff that's happening right now is we've had to call our entire database a couple times now because we're just trying to reach out to people and say some of the most meaningful times have happened on the phone. It's my point is this, there's so much stuff that we think is impacting people. And when we realize, Oh, that's not what's actually, I think the Lord's bringing some real clarity that we're going to see some real fruit from as well as I think the prodigals are coming home. They are coming home. And I think it's in yeah. the midst of famine that they encounter that what the world promised them, it can't deliver. Yeah. That the world cannot deliver on its promises. And it's in the midst of famine that they figure that out. And it's when they say, I'm going to go home. Yeah. So, so what pivots are you guys at Jesus Culture thinking you're going to have to make when the doors do open back up? Yeah, I don't know how much pivots. This is a really great question. People have been asking a lot, like, what's the church going to look like? And all this type of stuff. I'm not a guy who thinks the church is going to be online. Uh, I, I'm not a guy who thinks somehow I just, I, I just, uh, how would I describe it? I think that we're going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. I think there will be more use of technology and stuff like that. But when you talk about pivot, what I think we're realizing is this, is that the, um, the digital world or online is a great front door, but it's an incomplete house. So it's a great door to walk in. It's a horrible place to live. Um, and so, so what, what I think we're finding right now in this moment is that technology and online and digital, it has just widened the church's front door. Yeah. The mm -hmm. church's front door just got a lot bigger. And I think pastors are just had to get caught up with that, are now realizing that the church's front door is a lot bigger. So I think that this moment is showing us what online can do, but simultaneously, I think it's showing us the limitations of online as well, that there are just certain things you can't replace. You can't replace life on life. You can't replace the in-person gathering of worshipers. You, there's certain things you can't replace. Right. And, and I think my concern is, is if you can imagine like a pool with a deep end, you need a shallow end, like, yeah. but but I don't think I don't think it could ever be a deep end. But it's a it's a, and I'm not saying it's a ne I'm not using even use the word negative shallow, but um some some of the church is saying hey this is where the world's going the world's all online the world's all digital but I'm also going yeah and the world's super shallow in its connections, <laughs> like like the world uh, my daughter she's 21 but when she was probably 17 she's in high school she's literally friends with this group of friends they come over to my house. And, uh, and one of the guys, I said, hey, run with me real quick. Just met him for the first time. I said, go, I'm going to go to the store. It's five minutes away. Come with me. Get in the car, drive to the store, get something, come back. And I'm asking questions. I'm like, hey, uh, um, you know, 
uh, what do you do and where are you from? And, and da, da, da. I get home that night and I'm sitting at dinner with my daughter. She's 17. I said, I forget her friend's name, but I said, hey, you know, Matt, I said, did you know that his dad left him when he was young and his grandfather has raised him and he pretty much sees his grandfather as his father? My daughter, who's friends with this guy, she goes, I didn't know that. I said, did you, did you know that he goes to this church over there? And I just lifted off the stuff. She goes, no, I didn't know that. I said, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> like, what are you? But they're not. They're right. just Snapchatting back and forth. Yeah. They're just doing quick little texts. Mm -hmm. My point is this, is sometimes we look at the world and go, well, the world's online. The church has to go online. And I'm like, hey, the world, like, it's a great front door. It's a right. great shallow end. It is a bad deep end. It's a bad house. In my opinion, this is my opinion. But, and so I think that that's the pivot. I think the pivot that the church is going to have to make is how do we bring these two together? How do we have a hybrid that opens the door wide, that allows people to be in a shallow end, to be introduced to the pool, but also recognizes it can never fully get to the depth that we need to get when we are face-to-face, life-on-life, walking with each other, um, you know, so that, that's my, that's my kind of rant right now. Yeah, yeah. I agree. My, my father-in-law is a church planner and we've had conversations. He said, I would get, he said, I would get a building. I would get someone who could lead singing and I'd put a sign up and we'd start church. And the sign was what attracted people. And I think yes. what's become the sign nowadays is, is your online space. Yes. It's yeah. simply a space where somebody can, because listen, before I walk in your building, I'm going to, I'm going to look at your Facebook or your Instagram. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to look at your website. Yeah. I, people are investigating you long before they walk in the door. Yes. Yes. But I agree with you, Banning. There is, there is something about, especially worship and, and the, the opportunity to respond to the word in person that is exceptionally different than sitting on my couch. Yeah. No, absolutely. There's accountability. There's fathering, mothering, yeah. like, and, and if church is a family, here's my, if church is a family, which is supposed to be a family, it's not a corporation. It's not a, it's a family. You know, any family that's going to be mothering and fathering their kids online. Right. I, right. I, 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 I'm just practically speaking. Like, do you know how unsatisfied I would be if my, if my, my connection with my daughter was an online experience? Of mm, course. Yeah. Like, no, we're going to, we're going to hug each other and, we're going, we're going to sit together and we're going to be, you know, it's just that type of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff and I are huge local church fans. Both of us have been in pastoral ministry and I was in pastoral ministry. Well, I guess I still am technically, but in a local church setting before I got here. Um, but now I think, you're just hanging out with young adults. Now I'm just hanging out with young shops. adults. So chill. So chill. Just with like, that come on, man. Coffee, coffee shops don't count as that. But Bro, this is, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to lie. This is a bougie gig. This is a bougie <laughs> gig. It's, it's good. Um, but anyway, so, so we're huge local church fans. Uh, Jeff and I talk a lot with other guests on the show with ourselves. And really how this whole podcast started was us asking these hard questions about how does the local church become the culture shaper not the culture consumer, right? And that's a kind of exactly what we're talking about is in the midst of this incredibly digital sort of new paradigm that we're venturing into, there's a great culture shaping moment here for the local church where we can invest and uh, enforce sort of the, the human design that God has given us to simply touch and, and, and to be together. So culture shaping obviously is something that that you guys have done and done very well i mean that's 
you know, we could debate that or argue that or whatever. That's fine. But I think, you know, what you guys have done at Jesus culture is, is definitely impacted the culture of the local church in significant ways. So in that, in that thought process, how can, how can we as local churches, whether we're a size of a hundred or a size of, of 20,000 doesn't really matter. How can we begin to shape our communities? How do we begin to shape our culture where we are? Well, I would have a philosophical issue that we would, I would probably wrestle with with churches around this issue of what our job is and even what the, what the fivefold mandate is. And so it, let me unpack this real quick. I think that our job is to build people. So at the end of the day, I don't think our job is to build programs. I don't think our job, and, I, and, and programs aren't bad. Um, I, I don't think our job is to somehow, our job is to build people. Right. Let's build people and let's see what comes out of them. I think when Paul says that he's a master builder, if you look at the context, I think when he's talking about he's a master builder, I think he's talking about people, that, that he's a master builder when it comes to people, if you look at the context of that passage. And so I think if the church can put its attention on um, that, and even the fivefold, Ephesians 4, it's that we're there, the fivefold has been given to equip people. The fivefold has been given to equip people. It's been given to mature people so that they can go do what they're called to do. <laughs> like go do what you're called to do. Yeah. And if you if, if you can if you're healthy and you're equipped and you're effective and you're doing what you're called to do, then we're going to see impact. But instead, the fivefold hasn't necessarily the, the focus hasn't been to build people. They've been building programs that do the Christian life for people. This is yeah. my big mm-hmm. thing right now. Is is that the church has just begun to do people's Christian life for them instead of equipping them to do their Christian life. So when you talk about impacting culture, for me, impacting culture is about build people and see, and see what happens. Like, like let's, go build, let's go build people. Let's go build the CEOs. Let's go build the people that are starting nonprofits. Let's go build the people in education. Let's go build these people. Let's, let's get them healthy. Let's get them equipped. Let's make them effective. Let's get them in community. And then let them go happen in community we we for years we didn't even use the word leader in our church we would say that you because if church is a family you contribute to the family but you lead in the city so yeah. our whole mandate was like we need to raise up leaders stay-at-home mom you're a leader in your community uh you know you deliver pizzas you're a leader in your community you work at the police department you're a leader in your community how do we raise up people who think like leaders who take responsibility and ownership for the call that God has put on their life and then go do that. And I think we're going to see culture shaped and transformed when we really actually just say our goal is to raise up leaders. When we first came to Sacramento, we had a mandate with Jesus culture for years. We just said, we want to raise up leaders and flood the earth with them. We came to Sacramento and somebody said, well, what's your vision now? I said, it's the same. I want to raise up leaders and flood Sacramento with them. And so I think that there just has to be a shift if I could maybe poke, if I could maybe poke something since we're on this right now and I'm in quarantine, but I think, I think the, the church has to shift. This is a philosophical church shift that has to happen. The church has somewhat been, I mentioned this, but the church has been doing people's Christian life for them. Right. Right. So the church, the organization called the church is taking care of the poor. The organization called the church is discipling people. The organization is figuring out how to solve problems and all this type of stuff. Rather than empowering people to do that, we're kind of doing it for them. And, and the problem is, is, is we've removed, 
I love consumerism in America. I kid you not, consumerism makes my life easier because consumerism removes the struggle from my life. So it's like I can now go to Safeway and I just order it online and they deliver the gro they just bring the groceries out to me. There are people in companies that are sitting around trying to figure out how to make my life easier. That's amazing. And and so, but the problem when consumerism comes into the church is the goal of consumerism is to remove struggle. Consumerism is trying to remove struggle. So they're trying to make it as easy as possible so you'll spend money at their business. So Staples has an entire, Staples has an entire, um, uh, you know, advertising campaign around an easy button. Right. Uh, because, oh, oh, those other places, it's hard to shop at Office Depot. It's easy to shop here. And I'm going to Staples just because it's easier, they said. And, and, and this is how it works. Two competing coffee shops on the same street. Um, they're trying to figure out how do I get people to, to, to buy my coffee? Well, one day the owner's sitting there and a guy drives up, gets out of his car, walks in, stands in line, orders the coffee, waits for the coffee, walks back out to his car and leaves. And the owner goes, I think I could remove an obstacle and remove the struggle by putting in a drive-through. So now people are buying coffee from him because he's removed some struggle and made it easier. You don't have to walk in anymore. The problem is, is the church has adopted this model. And listen, I want to serve our people well. I want to be excellent. I want to make signs so they can make sure that they get to where they need. I, like I want to do all that type of stuff. But people are confused when they come in and they wonder why there's struggle involved in Christianity. Like there's struggle involved in community. I don't know what to tell you. Like there's struggle involved in community. And, and, and if we as a church are constantly just trying to figure out how do I remove all the struggle out of your life, then we, 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 we keep people immature. Okay, this is my really long answer for what you're asking is that if I'm going to impact culture, I have to raise up leaders who have been through the struggle of figuring out what their call is and are now engaging it. Not just looking to me and the organization called the church to do it for them. They're not just coming in and saying, hey, we're supposed to change the world, so what are you doing about that? Hey, what are we doing in this COVID crisis right now? What's, what's our church doing for everybody? Like, what are we doing? What, what, what are you doing? Like, I don't know what we're paying you for, Pastor, but we're doing something in the community, right? Rather than believers, who are saying, what am I doing? What am I going to do in this moment? How can I make a difference? How can I be a part of the solution? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Oh yeah. yeah. You're, you're all over my hot buttons right now. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm like tweaking over here. I'm like, but yeah, yeah. we had several of these conversations and something I tell the students here all the time is be significant now, not where you think you're going to be. Yes. Like, just because you're yes. a college student doesn't mean that you can't make a difference where you are. So yes. that's a conversation probably the top, one or two conversations I have on a regular basis with college students is they're trying to figure out what in the world they're called to do this whole vocation and calling mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. Right. And so they're trying to figure that, that piece out. And then, then there's a whole, the whole part about uh, owning our own faith. Like, you know, uh, Addison Bevere talked about this yeah. quite a bit, just like be significant on your street, like yes. know your neighbor, help yes. you feel mowing Star grass. World. Just, just start where you are, start where yeah. you are. Right. And I think, I think these are such important conversations to have. And I, and I love kind of just to dial back a little bit when you started talking about how things were just stripped away 
right? I think what we're finding with the strip away of the noise and the stripping away of all the nonsense is the purity of the faith that we have in Christ and really what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. Right. And I think, I think these are the beautiful things that come out of the season that we're in. And we talked about on a different show, so I'm not going to rail on it here, but, but this whole, I mean, I'm really into this exile mentality right now and figuring Mm, out, you know, uh, N.T. Wright says that God was never closer than when in exile. Yes. When when people of God were in exile. Right. So there's great beauty in this struggle. There's great power in this struggle. There's great, there's great significance in this struggle. If we're willing to be resilient, engage the struggle and allow God to work through our lives in the midst of it. So I'm, I'm all, I'm tracking with you, bro. I'm loving it. Good stuff. And it's in the wilderness where you, where you come to terms with the fact that your own strength is not what sustains you. God, your source. Right. And so you're right. I mean, there's just the wilderness is, is a gift. It's a, it's, it's not a, um, it's, it's, it's not a punishment. Right. And so we can, yeah, I love it. I love what you're saying. Yeah. Let's, let's shift to the book, the three mile walk. I think we segue well. So how do you, how do we help people struggle? We'll use that language still and walk this thing out. Yeah. Well, the three mile walk for me, um, I wrote, I I read rooted, wrote rooted. uh, uh, I guess it got released four years ago and it's been on my heart to kind of, come alongside people again in a way that just encourages them, challenges them, inspires them, but really just uh, causes an awakening to happen around the call of God in their life. I'm convinced we're most alive, we're, we're most fulfilled, we're most thriving when we're fully engaged in the call in our life. You just use the same phrase I would use, that we all have a call. We have a call to be someone and we have a call to do something. Are you engaged in that call? Are you moving forward in that call? And, and I think it requires, in order to, the, the story, the Three Mile Walk is really based out of the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And it's this incredible kind of parallel picture of the Israelites are encamped against the Philistines, but King Saul and his army are content to sit underneath the pomegranate tree and look from a distance at the Philistines, but not really engage the Philistines. And then something happens in the heart of Jonathan one day where he just gets stirred and he said, I don't want to sit any longer. I'm going to get up no matter what the cost and go engage what God has called me to do. And, uh, and he starts that journey. We call it the three mile walk because in between the hill where the Israelites were and the hill where the Philistines were, there was a three mile valley. Mm. And so I think whenever you say yes to God and you get up and you go engage the call that he has for you, you just run into uh, a bunch of stuff along. You just have, it takes a massive amount of courage. It takes faith. It takes holiness. But what I, to address your question would be this is it, it, it starts with taking ownership. Like, how do people find out what their call is? Well, first, just take ownership that you have a call. You'll figure your call out, in all honesty. If you say, I, God's got a, God has a call on my life, and I'm going to engage it, then you just begin to pay attention. God's been speaking to you your whole life about what he's called you to and who he's called you to be. And he paints in strokes. He paints in brush strokes. And eventually, you begin to get a clearer picture of what the painting is. Um, but it really does start by just taking ownership. Like I, 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 I'm going to set myself, I'm going to set myself apart and I'm going to fully engage what God has called me to. And I don't, and God never calls us with details. This is the crazy part, right? When he comes to the disciples or Abraham, he doesn't call us with details. He calls us with a promise. He looks at us and says, I'm going to make you, I, 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 I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to make you, you're going to look like Jesus and you're going to 
you're going to be a part of changing the world. Follow me and you're going to change the world and you're going to look like Jesus. And we want to know details, but he doesn't call us with details. He just calls us with the promise. Yeah. And so I, I, my, my heart is, man, a college students, especially, I mean, can we, is, is, is there, is there a better moment in life that feels like you're starting the journey, mm. <laughs> you, you know, like, like, like you're now an adult, you know, you're no longer a kid anymore. You're an adult, you're making choices and you are starting and launching into what God has for you. And so that's kind of what this is, but it takes a ton of courage. Um, and it takes ownership and, and it takes kind of stopping long enough just to pay attention to what God's put in your heart. Yeah. I want to go back to a conversation you had earlier. And I think the lines of this, you talked about Kristen DeMarco and seeing her at that, at that prayer conference in, in Southern and San Francisco. Um, and it seems like Jesus culture has this sort of ability to kind of gather and collect the called almost um, yeah. like you recognize that and then give, space for that to be developed. Um, I, I think we sit with a lot of college students who know they have a calling. They're starting to identify it. Um, how do we help them sort of walk that process of, of walking out, learning to operate and engage in their calling? Yeah, I'm a pretty big community guy. So I would first say you find your calling and your calling um, begins to manifest in the context of community. So I think you first find your tribe. Mm. I think your mm. call manifests in your tribe. So sometimes when people are trying to go find their calling, my advice to them is first find your tribe. Where's your tribe? Where are you supposed to land? Where are you supposed to serve? And I think that God really gives us our mandate when we're serving in, the, in a community. And, and I'll, biblically, I'll tell you this. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses receives the mandate from God where he's going to lead the people. And this is a significant moment for the, I mean, this is a, a historic, you know, I, this is a significant moment for, you know, 400 years of slavery. The people of Israel have been, mm -hmm. they have a promised land. They have a land of inheritance, land flowing, but they, you know, since Joseph died, it's not gone well. So God's about to free his people and he's about to choose Moses to do this. This is a significant moment. And Moses is 80 years old and, and he, he, he turns aside in the burning bush. But in Exodus 3, the first verse, it says this, and Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, mm -hmm. which is not an insignificant statement. It was in the context of tending somebody else's flock that Moses received his call to, to take care of the people of Israel. So, so when Jesus says, how, if you can't be faithful with what is another man's, how can you be entrusted with what's your own? A lot of us want a call. A lot of us want a vision. A lot of us want a mandate or a ministry or whatever else you want to say. But, but, but a lot of us don't want to find a community to serve. A lot of us yeah. don't want to find somebody else's flock to take care of. Mm -hmm. yeah. And not knowing that if you can be faithful with somebody else's vision, God will give you your own vision. If you can be faithful with somebody else's call, God will give you your own call. And I think he's wanting to know, can I trust you? And, and when he says, how can you be entrusted with your own? The reality is, is God goes, if you can't take care of somebody else's, why would I think you're going to take care of yours? Like you want me to release to you 
a vision and you can't even take care of somebody else's vision. Why would I give you your own vision? You, mm -hmm. you know, you can't even babysit somebody else's kids. Why would I give you, you yeah. your kids? So it's that type of thing where I would encourage people right off the bat, find your tribe. And coming out of college, just a big one, right? Because maybe your tribe was home and now you're there. And when I was at college, almost everybody stayed afterwards. They didn't go back home. And so, so lots of times for college students, they're a little bit tribeless. They find their tribe on campus for a season. But, but when they're done, where's your tribe? Find your yeah. tribe. Find yeah. who God has called you to be with. Find the community that you're to run with. And it's in that context that God will then begin to release you into your destiny. So that's a huge yeah. point. I mean, I think one of the conversations, even here on this campus, um, another, another good friend of ours um, who, who is in servant leadership here, teaches servant leadership, said to me, he said, Jeff, it's, I encourage students to try four churches and settle in one. He goes, the problem is in four years, they only go to four churches and they only go four Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so when they leave, and a lot of them do stay here in this community, they are tribeless, and yes. and they love the Lord, and they love yes. they love community, and they want to see the world change, and they are adrift so bad, and and so that's one of that's really why we started this podcast. I think we were trying to answer that question: How do we engage them in this community and tribe called local church? Because they come here and just get disconnected so quickly. Um, yeah. So. Uh, maybe we can figure that out and finally write that book. But <laughs> well, there's also a level, honestly, there's a level of maturity that's required to stay yeah. in community yeah. when it's not convenient. There's no way of getting around college, especially if you live in the dorms, but college life, everybody's, you know, you're all on the same schedule for the most part. You're right. not married. You don't have kids. You can hang out every night. Uh, YWAM school of ministries. All of these are, are kind of these bubble environments where community is is easy it really is it, mm -hmm. it's kind of self-made everybody's in the same stage of life everybody's got time on their hands and then when they leave that bubble they're kind of like well what's going on like i was hanging out every night and and, and we have this thing in the dorms and we had this and then you get into the real world where people have you know <laughs> jobs and kids and they don't all live within two minutes of each other and and it, it, it requires us to grow up. And if I can oh, yeah. say this in a non-negative way, I just want to tell these guys in their early 20s, hey, it's time to grow up. It's time to mature. It's time to actually understand that you're going to have to be more intentional. Not everything is every night. And so I think they're, I, I honestly think college students just get thrown off by, I loved college. Like I loved college. I loved going to the beach with my friends. I loved the dorm life. I loved the hanging out at night. I it's because it was I in loved, SoCal. Yeah, totally. No, that's true. <laughs> so, I loved. I loved the little bubble pocket we were in. It was amazing. Right. But that's not real life. Yeah. No. And it doesn't. And and it actually doesn't take a ton of effort or maturity. It's kind of just built in. So I think there's a little bit of a shock. There's a little bit of whiplash, but don't allow that whiplash to stop you from finding your tribe. Go yeah. find your tribe. Oh, and I think in the midst of finding your tribe, you'll find your call. That's amazing. That's good. Hey man, we're, we're getting close to out of time here, pretty much out of time. But uh, we ask one final question of all of our guests on the show. And um, so we'd like to ask you the same question. So what's one lesson? 
that you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? How to surf. Am I allowed to have that? How to surf. Man, we were at the beach a lot. And I learned how to surf in college, and I did not learn that in the classroom. What did I learn outside of surfing? Um, They were bad lessons, honestly. In all honesty, they weren't even good lessons. They were, I just look back now, it's probably a lesson I learned later. I, you know, I just was broken in some areas and unhealthy in some areas. And, um, and so that's not a lot. I didn't learn it in college though. (laughs) I I kind of look back now and think, man, I wish I would have focused more on just the internal health of my life. And Mm -hmm. here's one thing I learned. I didn't learn. I I learned a, I learned a secret. I learned how to connect with the Lord, even when, uh, I, this is a lesson I learned that was good. I, I, my, I really learned how to connect with the Lord um, when, when I had to, uh, how would I describe this? Like dorm life was different because I had, I, had I had a dorm mate. And so um, I would have to go find time to be with the Lord somewhere else. And so I, I remember uh, distinct things that kind of stuck with me is I would just, it was a Walkman with a cassette tape and and headphones and I just get my Walkman out and I would walk around the streets and I'd find an alley somewhere and uh, I would just spend time with Jesus in this alley because that's just kind of where I that's the only place I could find I remember I worked at a um, uh, valet parking cars for this big circus that came into town and it was in this parking lot and at night while the circus was on they would have about an hour and a half where they would ask somebody to volunteer from the valets to go stand at the entrance of the car lot to not let anybody else pull in there. And it was always by myself in the dark at night. And I would always volunteer because I would just go over there. I just meet with the Lord. Mm. Like it would be me sitting in this parking lot, nobody else around in the dark and just worshiping God and meeting with God. This was before phones. I wasn't over there scrolling Instagram. Like we didn't have any smartphones. So I think I, I learned to meet with God in a pretty special way uh, while at college um, in unique ways, in, in ways that I had to go find. And I found that when I would get in a parking lot at night with nobody else around, God would meet with me. When I would go find an alley uh, because I couldn't take any time in my dorm room, God would meet with me. So I, I think in the midst of um, things, I definitely, that's a, a lesson that I'm very grateful for and kind of is still kept with me. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, the new book, as we mentioned earlier, is Three Mile Walk. Where can people get that, Banning? Uh, online, in anywhere books are sold. Amazon, you can go to jesusculture.com, the store there, but wherever you can, wherever you can find books. And how can we stay connected to you? Uh, you know, also jesusculture.com or all social media, I'm the Banning. Uh, and so, um, which is so funny, the more I'm saying that now, the more I'm like, I need to come up with a new name, but it was like Twitter. When did Twitter first come out? I however long uh, Twitter was. 2009, 10? No, no, no. Yeah. You're that. Maybe like 2005. Maybe. Yeah. So when Twitter first came out, we were like, your usernames was still like, so I'm at, what is that? Like, you know, and, um, so banning Leapshire was too long. Yeah. So I said, well, I don't know. There's probably not another banning leapshire in the world. So I'm just going to be the banning. <laughs> 
and now it's so that's my, all my user handles at the banning awesome hey man thanks again so much for being on the show and as we always like to say here bro you always have a seat at the table good to be with you guys Hey friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.